you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 90. Alright, look at me for just a second. We're about to pray together, but I want to say this sincerely. I want to welcome you not only to Grace Community Church this morning, I want to welcome every person in this room to 2017. That's a happy new year to you. Now I say that and I want to say this, okay? I want to give us something encouraging to think about as we begin to bow the knee and pray that God will meet us here today. And the encouraging thing is this, that 2017, it knows no veterans. There are no veterans in this room that you got this down. You, you know how to do 2017. We're about four hours into it, okay? Every one of us enter into this new year by the mercy of God, by the grace of God. And we want to enter into it like little children. Lord, teach me how to live. And that's how we're going to spend our time together today as we enter into this new year, we want to be instructed by God as to how to live to His glory and to His praise in 2017. So with that in mind, let's pray together this morning. Let's ask God to meet us here. Lord, we bow the knee to You this morning, and we call You our, our God, and we call You our King. And we call you our great God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins and rose triumphantly from the dead. Lord, we gather together today as your church. God, we are the people that are called by your name, that you have called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And we gather together today, Lord, to give you praise and honor and glory for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. And so we do that now. Praise to your name, Lord, for your great love that you have displayed for us through your cross. We are a sinful people. God, we are a sinful, undeserving people of your love and of your grace. But God, you have tread our iniquities under your feet. You have removed your transgressions, our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. And we gather together today as a people forgiven of our transgressions and of our sins. And you call us blessed. You call us blessed because we are forgiven. You call us blessed, Lord, because we are counted righteous in Jesus Christ this morning. You are our Savior. You have put away our sins. And we gather together on this day clean in Your holy presence. And we give You glory. And we give You honor. And we give You praise. Lord, You have become everything to us. You are everything to us, Lord Jesus. You are our Savior. The One who died for us. And in response to what You have done for us, Lord, we... In sincerity, we bow the knee. We ask You, Lord Jesus, teach us how to live in a way that pleases You. Lord, we want to spend our life in this world in such a way that brings You honor. In such a way that brings You joy. Now teach us how to live. Every single disciple in this room, Lord, teach us how to live in this world in such a way that makes sense in the world to come. God, we ask You to draw near to us today as we give attention to Your Word, God, that You 
would make it effective, Lord, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, that You would use Your Scriptures to speak to us this morning, every person in this room. Lord, come wake us up today to the glory of Christ. Wake us up to the brevity of our life. Wake us up to eternity today. Lord, wake us up to the things that matter. God, unless you draw near to us, Lord, these words will fall to the ground powerless. But we trust and we believe that you are the Lord, our God. You are faithful to feed your children. We ask you to do that this morning. Come feed us, Lord, with words from your mouth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Our theme today is going to be time. That's what this passage is about, this psalm is about, that we are about to cover this morning, Psalm 90. And I think that's an appropriate thing. We are entering into a new year. This is a season where we, we do at least two things. We reflect on the year that we just completed. We take inventory of how that year went to the glory and praise of God. And then we also make plans to change things in our life, to switch things around. We want to do better in the year to come, not in a worldly sense, but to the glory and praise of God's name. So I think it's, it's entirely appropriate for us entering into 2017 to pause and to consider this theme of time. We're going to consider it according to God's Word. Now, on the front end, I think we could all agree here. We would all all uh, rally together around this point. That time is a precious thing. Okay? If we thought about that long enough, every single one of us would agree with that. It is a time in this world. Time on this earth is a precious thing. For no other reason than this. It affects where you spend eternity. Time in this world affects what will happen to you in the world to come. And Jesus said that nothing was more important than that. Jesus said that, that if you were to gain everything that this world could offer you but lose your eternal soul, you have nothing. There's nothing more important than eternity. There's nothing more important than your soul. And time affects that. Which places a precious, precious value on our time in this world. But we have a problem. We rally around that point. This is a precious thing. We ought to regard time as a valuable thing, as a precious thing. But then we're all automatically confronted with this problem. Okay? If time were money, then we literally spend it all the time. Okay? There's never a moment where we're not spending it. And because it's so common to us, every single moment of every single day, we are tempted to be blind to the value and the preciousness of time. Every one of us in this room. It's like gasoline. Okay, We don't think that there's an endless supply of it. That's not what we think. But the way that we live, we might as well believe that. Okay? None of us goes to sleep at night worrying about running out of gasoline. In the same way, our, our predicament is that we don't, we don't lose sleep about running out of time. We are tempted to think that we have plenty, that we have more than we'll ever need, and so we devalue the preciousness 
and the value of time. I think that's a universal temptation all across this room. We are in a fight to see our life in this world as a precious, precious, precious thing. And so you think about this. If you had certainty, absolute concrete, take it to the bank, bet the ranch certainty, that 2017 would be your last year on planet Earth before you stood before the face, the glorious, radiant face of Jesus Christ, you would consider 2017 a precious, precious year for you. That would be something that you would steward with the utmost earnestness if you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that this was it for you, that you have no more, that this was your last year on planet Earth, it would be precious to you. So just think about it just in two ways. Think of how much work would be done for the Lord Jesus Christ if every one of us were to be woken up to that reality. This is it. After this, there's no more work for the Lord. After this, I stand before the face of Jesus Christ. How much work would be done for Christ? You would consider it a precious thing. Think about this. You have one year left and nothing else after that. How much attention would you give to your soul? The cultivation of your soul. The state of your soul before the one true and the living God. If you knew that this was it. And after this year, there is no more. It would be a precious thing to you. All across this room, if you knew with certainty, it would be a precious, precious thing to you. Jonathan Edwards, leader of the most powerful revival that's ever been in America, he said this. He once said, There is nothing more precious than time, and yet nothing with which we are more proud of it. Nothing more precious than time, but yet at the same time, there's nothing with which we are more prodigal. We are wasteful with this precious resource that God has given us. And those words, that quote came from a man who was very, very serious about the way that he lived in this world. A sober-minded man that lived carefully. He guarded his steps in this life. In his early 20s, Jonathan Edwards wrote a, a, a little set of guidelines, uh, goals, aims that he wanted to go after in his life. And we look back and we call that little pamphlet, that little book, we know that as Jonathan Edwards' Resolutions. Resolutions. Many of you may have heard about this. This is not like the worldly version of a New Year's resolution of eat less of this or lose this amount of weight. This is resolutions about pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. Okay? I'm going to read a few of these as we begin our time together because I think that this is a very, very good example for us of a disciple of Jesus Christ who is serious about the way that he is living and regarding his time on planet Earth as a precious, precious thing. Remember, as I read this, I want you to remember these came from a 20, about a 20-year-old man serious about his walk with the Lord Jesus in, his world, in this world. Resolution number five. I resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolution number nine. Resolve to think much of my own death. 
You ever do that? That's coming from a 20-year-old man. Resolution number 22. Resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Resolution number 48. Resolve to constantly and with strict scrutiny to always be looking into the state of my soul. Resolution number 54. Resolve to endeavor to live as if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. Torments of hell. I highly recommend that you spend some time reading through those, but this is just a small example of a man who is serious about the way that he's living in this world. To put biblical language on what he's doing there is he's doing Proverbs 4.26 which says this, Ponder the path of your feet. Translation, think about how you are walking through this world. God's Word forbids us to walk carelessly through life. We are to ponder it. We are to live a calculated life thinking about how we are spending our time in this world. So he's a good example of this well-planned, calculated life of I only receive this much amount of time and I want to use it for the glory and praise of God. So all these things coming together, this is what Psalm 90 is about. It's about time. It's about how little of it we have and it's about using this little bit of time to the glory and praise of God. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to go ahead and turn to Psalm 90. We're not going to read that in its entirety on the front end. We're going to work our way through it as we work our way through this passage. Before we begin, I want you to look at that little heading above Psalm 90. That actually is in the biblical text of Scripture. It's in the Hebrew text. That heading is part of God's Word. And it should say something like this. Okay? A prayer of Moses, the man of God. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Let me say two things about that heading before we work our way through this text of Scripture. The first is this. It is a fallacy that every song is a song to be sung. Okay? Certainly nothing wrong with singing Psalm 90 as a song. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, there are hymns in church history that are based off of this, this song, Psalm 90. But in its essence, this song is a prayer. Okay? And I'm handing it to you just like God handed it, handed it straight to us from His Word. This is a prayer to you. Disciples of Jesus, and I'm commending this as a prayer for you to use in your own personal life as you enter into this new year. This is a prayer of a man of God. The second thing I want to point out is that we have an opportunity this morning to learn from Moses, who is called a man of God. Now, I've done this quite often. Sometimes I find myself... Daydreaming. I did not have the privilege of growing up in this world with a godly father that taught me how to walk in Jesus Christ, taught me how to pray, taught me how to read the scriptures, taught me about Christ-like character. And so many, many times I, I find myself longing for 
conversations with these old, seasoned saints that have walked with Jesus Christ for decades. Decades. And I find myself wanting to have conversations with them about, teach me how to live for Christ. Teach me about what you have learned in the Christian life. And so if you were to present to me something like this, Dustin, 5 o'clock tomorrow, you can have a conversation with Jonathan Edwards. And you can pull up a, a chair right beside him. You can begin to dialogue. He wants to talk to you about how to live in this world to the glory and praise of God. Just like many of you, okay, heroes in church history, just like many of you, I'm jumping all over that. I want that influence in my life. I want the influence of seasoned saints, seasoned servants of God. Teach me how to walk with Christ. I want that. So do you. So I want you to think about this as that times a hundred. Okay? Psalm 90 is our opportunity to pull up a chair and, and basically to have an inspired conversation with Moses, the man of God. So as profitable as having a, a dialogue and a conversation with Jonathan Edwards or whoever it might be from church history, as profitable as you would see that, it doesn't even compare to me. Okay? It doesn't even compare to this. Let me, let me remind you that Exodus chapter 33 tells us that this man talked face to face with God as a man speaks to his friend. And you say, so what? I spoke to God this morning in my prayer life. That's not what we're talking about. Okay? Moses physically talked with the living God face to face as a man with his friend. Listen, listen, the very next chapter, uh, Exodus 34, tells us that he enjoyed such close fellowship and communion with the living God that his face lit up like some nuclear radiation, that the glory of God literally rested upon this man so that he had to veil himself before he spoke to the children of Israel. I want you to imagine getting to talk to a man. Spoke to the living God had the glory of the eternal God radiating off His face. And He gets to tell you, this is how you live for Christ. This is how you are to walk in this world. Psalm 90 is our opportunity to pull up a chair and to do that. To hear from this man of God that has spoke with God. I want to take this even further. We know from the nature of how this psalm is written, that this psalm is written towards the very end of Moses' life. And, and this is the oldest song. This is the oldest song in the book of Psalms. Scripture tells us that Moses lived to be 120 years old in this world. So I want you to think about that. We long for those conversations with those seasoned <coughs> servants of God. And we're thinking 65, 75, maybe 85. This is 120 year old man addressing those children of Israel that he has a burden for and he wants to teach them about life in this world. And that's the framework that I want us to hear Psalm 90. It doesn't matter how old you are in this room. A 120 year old man is about to address you about how to walk in this world to the glory and praise of God. And every single one of us in humility 
like little bitty children want to gather around this song and we want to be instructed about how to live in this world. And with this prayer, more than anything else, He's about to give us the things that we need to give the most attention to in our earthly lives. It's like He was saying, listen, you need to know everything in this book, but here's the things that matter more than anything else. You are in desperate need of giving attention to these things. This is the framework of Psalm 90. And we're going to start with the very first point. very first thing that Moses does is he reminds us of who God is. very first thing reminds us of who God is. Why would you have to do that? Ryan talked about this just not even a couple of minutes ago, about this spiritual forgetfulness. I mean, think about that. Once you even got a taste of the eternal God of glory, why would you ever need to be reminded of who God is? Because we are forgetful, sinful people. And that's the first thing He does. Psalm 90 shows us that God is a great, eternal refuge. Look at this in the first two verses. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, forever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Two things Moses affirms in those first two verses about God. One is God is eternal. God is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, God is God. And he tells us that before the mountains were brought forth, Before Genesis 1, before creation happened, God was God. He always has been. He always will be. God is without beginning, without end. He is eternal in nature. Now that's a really, really hard thing. Infinite time. A God not bound by time in any way. No beginning, no end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. That's a very difficult concept to stuff in our finite brains, is it not? It scrambles the human brain. We can't fully comprehend it. But Scripture is clear about this. God is eternal. Everything besides Him has a beginning, but God doesn't. He is from everlasting, and He is to everlasting. He is the eternal God. Genesis chapter 21, verse 3. He is called the everlasting God. So you think about this. Moses is reminding us of who God is. And the very first shot across the bow is he wants you to remember this morning. We are not talking about some little G God, some some little idea that you have studied in a book. We are talking about the everlasting God. No beginning, no end. Time cannot constrain the God of Scripture. Isaiah 57, verse 15, tells us that God inhabits eternity. Think about that. That's where He lives. That's where He dwells. You inhabit time. I inhabit time. I'm constrained by time. So are you. Every other created thing is constrained by time. But God inhabits eternity. He is above time, sovereign over time, creator of time, ruler of time. He is the everlasting God. Jeremiah 10, verse 10, calls Him the living God 
and the everlasting King. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, he is called this. The Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality. So here it is. The first reminder to us today is that God is glorious. He is eternal in nature. He is not like us. He is eternal. And then, he turns the corner, and we have this picture of this mighty, eternal God. And then he says that that eternal, mighty one has been in every human generation. He has been a dwelling place for the people of God. And really, that's the main, that's the main reminder for us today. That He is reminding us that in all of His sovereignty, in all of His exaltedness, that that eternal one has been faithful in every single human generation to be a dwelling place. Dwelling place. And really that word would be better translated as a refuge. Very next psalm, Psalm 91 verse 9, that's exactly how the word is translated, a refuge. God has been a refuge in every generation. That's a term of safety. He's been a place where you run to God and you are safe from danger. You are God becomes your refuge. And God has been this place of safety, this eternal God has been this place of safety in every human generation. Every human generation. So I want you to imagine this. These two attributes are going together. The eternality of God, it's not mentioned for itself. It takes us to the next thing. The eternal one is who offers himself in every generation as a habitation of safety. Which means this. If the eternal one is the one that you dwell in for safety, then you have received, catch this, eternal safety. Eternal safety. Eternal safety. This is who He is. The eternal one is the one who offers us safety. That means that God as your refuge offers you the strongest imaginable protection. The strongest protection that you could possibly imagine is the protection that you receive from the everlasting one. The one who is from eternity, without beginning and without end. Now these two, these two go together. The eternal refuge, the eternal refuge that is, God, that is God. And this is not even the first time that Moses has mentioned this. So I want you to go back to Deuteronomy, another book that Moses wrote. And listen to these words in Deuteronomy 33. I want you to listen to this. The eternal God. Say that again. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. That's it. That's both of those together. The eternality of God and the protection of God comes together. And, and once you receive those, you are literally upheld and undergirded, look at that, by everlasting arms. That's what it means to have God as your refuge, God as your dwelling place. You have received a place of eternal safety. This is who God is. Okay? Now, here's the problem. You know this. You know this about yourself. 
You know this about others that you love in this world? What's man's problem? Man's problem is this. You hear about the eternal God offering Himself as a place of safety in every single human generation. And the, ten the tendency of man is to hear those things and turn to something else and he can care less about it. You're talking about the eternal God offering Himself as a place of refuge and I could care less about it. Why is that true? Why is that far too often true of us? Why is that far too often true of people that you love? And about what issues those questions? That deep in the core of man, man thinks that man is fine without God. A refuge means nothing to a person that does not see themselves in danger. Amen? If I to tell you that I had life jackets, 25, and I'm going to pass them out for free in the room this morning, you're looking at me like, who cares about that? You know, I don't even know uh, what the closest body of water is. Who cares about a life jacket? And that's how this news of God, the eternal refuge, hits lost mankind. They think they're fine without God. And we know that that's far too often true of us. Man feels safe apart from God, which is why the very next thing that Moses does is he reminds us of who man is. He's reminded us of who God is, and then he reminds us of who man is. And you have a drastic contrast between these two things. God is the eternal refuge of safety, but man is the mortal sinner. The exact opposite of who God is. Look at this in verse 3. You return man to dust, and you say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? This is who man is. In contrast to the eternal God, man is nothing. God is forever without beginning and without end. He is sovereign over time. Man is bound by time. But even more than that, His lifespan is marked by brevity. He is frail and fading. God is forever. Man is frail. Man is frail. Remember, this is that old servant of God who has spoken face to face with God and He's trying to tell us something. Okay? We don't think about ourselves like this enough. We are in a battle to see our life and our time on planet Earth 
rightly. So he's reminding us, God is like that. You're not. You're like this. You're frail and you are fading. Frail and fading. And he's being brutally honest with us. And I love people that do that with me. I don't want a velvet mouth. I don't want sugar lined all over it. I want you to give it to me straight. And he does that. And he says this. You are going to die sooner than you think you're going to die. That is what he's saying here. That's the reminder for us. You think that you have more time than you actually do. Look at this. This is so clear. Verse 4. He uses a thousand years. That is a representation of the longest human lifespan. It's a summary of that. 965 years. The longest lifespan that a human has ever walked this earth in the scope and the perspective of God from eternity is like a four-hour night shift. Four-hour night shift. Think about that. You think about living a thousand-year life and you're thinking, i got all this time, all this time to do whatever I want. Look at this much time that I have. And God says, you have four hours. You have a watch in the night. That's verse 4. Look at verse 6. He describes our life in verse 6 as grass that fades away. See it spring up with the morning dew and the afternoon heat scorches it to the ground. That's the picture that God would have you think about your own life in this world. Your life is like the fading grass. It's like a four-hour night shift. And then look at this in verse 10. Very explicit. Okay, You will be soon gone we say that again. You will be soon gone and then you will fly away. That's a reminder for every one of us. Soon. That's the key word there. God would have you think about your life like this. I will soon die. Key word. I will soon die. Sooner than I think that I will. I will die. This is how the Bible commands us to think about our life in this world. Listen to these verses. Job chapter 16 verse 22 says this. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall never return. Just a few years are coming and then I'm going the way that I'm never coming back. Job 16 verse 22. Psalm 144 verse 4 says this. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. How would you like starting a self-help talk with that verse? Here's a self-help talk. I want, to, I want you to, to help you improve yourself. Think about yourself. And the very first bullet point is you are a breath. You're a passing shadow in this world. Your life means nothing compared to eternity. James chapter 4, verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist. That appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Like this. I want you to just, just picture this. Just imagine in my hand some little pump sprayer. Little pump sprayer. Like a little can of hairspray or something like that. And I shoot it up in the air. And you watch it float down for about a foot, maybe two foot. And then it disappears and you never see it again. And that's what God says your life is like. You are a vapor, a mist, a passing shadow in this world. And then you fly away. 
And this is Moses, the man of God, and he's saying this. You are going to die sooner than you think you're going to die. And then he transitions to another thing. And not only will you die, it will not be an accident. Your death will not be an accident. Your death will be the work of this and close. And don't walk out of here until you see these verses. I'm not preaching heresy, I'm preaching Scripture. Your death will not be the result of yourself, any other human in this world, any other circumstances in this world. Your death will not be the result of a demon or Satan himself. Your death will be the result of the sovereign God. The sovereign God. Death is His doing. It's His work. Look how clear this is. Look at verse 5. Look at the personal pronoun. You sweep them away as with a flood. Who did that? God did that. God sweeps mankind away as, as with a flood. Look at verse, verse 7. We are brought to an end by, listen to this, your anger. Satan doesn't kill us. You understand that? God work is death. It belongs to Him. He decides when you are born in this world. He decides when you are removed from this world. Look at verse 3. Very explicit. Again. You return man to dust. Do you know that? You know that there's an appointment coming for you. It won't be an accident. It won't be some mishap. It won't be the work of Satan. There is an appointment coming for you when the eternal God will return you to the dust. Death is the work of God. And that phrase, return man to the dust, is a reminder of why we have this death sentence, right? That's a flashback and a reflex back to the Garden of Eden. And we are reminded that we have this penalty from God the just judge because we rebelled against Him in the garden. And from that rebellion and because of that sin, we must return to the dust. It is a reminder of our sinfulness and is a reminder of God's justice. We are part of a race, a human race, that is under God's judgment. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. Let's press this further. Let's, let's fight to see this as personal. Okay? Your death is coming sooner than you think. And it will be by the sovereign appointment and the work of God Himself. And now I want to take it a step even further. Your death will come as a result of a word that goes out of God's mouth. Look at this in verse 3. There's coming a time where he will literally say this in verse 3. Return, O children, and then it says in the Hebrew, of Adam. Okay? Return, O children of Adam. That is coming for you. There is a word that will come out of God's mouth that will remove you from this world. And that word is this. Return. Return. I want you to fight to see that personal. That's going to happen 100% all across this room. Return. 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 Put your name there. Return. 
it's going to happen. A word from God's mouth is going to summon you to the grave and bring you to His judgment seat. And at that point, you will die and you will give an account of your life before your Creator. So it's coming. Sooner than you think, God's going to do it and He's going to do it with His Word. With His Word you were created. With His Word you will be removed from this world. Now, we said that we have this innate problem in us that when we're offered safety, when we're offered refuge, we're tended to look down on it because we don't see our need of it. And so, maybe you have that same question even now. Or maybe you need this reminder. Why is that such a bad thing? I mean, sounds cool with me. God is going to open His mouth. He's going to summon me to the grave and then bring me before His judgment seat. And I'm there with God. What's so bad about that? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Psalm 9, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before You, our secret sins in the light of Your presence. Now, God was kind to us. Okay? There's extra words there, that, that little extra adjective. He's kind to us. Not only does God say that your sins are set before His holy presence, but He says this, for secret sins. That means at least two things. That means the sins that you have committed that you don't even remember anymore. You don't even know about them anymore. Or sins that you committed and you didn't even know that they were sins. You don't know, God knows. They are sitting before His face. And they're, they're, they're in the light. They're not in the darkness. And then it also means this. That there are things in your life and in my life that if everybody in this room knew about you would produce indescribable shame to be cast before everybody in this room in a moment. Your secret sin. Not just the things that you feel comfortable talking about, safe to talk about to others, those things that you hold in so close that you would never confess them. Never confess them. Secret sins. Secret sins are in the light before God. And the reason that this is such a big deal is because every single sin that you have ever committed is sitting before the face in the light of the holy God of justice. And if that was a math equation, holiness of God, sinfulness of man, then the only thing that will ever equal is the wrath, the eternal wrath of God. The God of Scripture will punish sin every single time without exception. His justice demands it. Holiness of God, sinfulness of man equals the wrath of God. This is why you need a dwelling place. This is why you need a place of refuge, a place of safety. And this is God's offer in every single generation. He's been faithful to make that offer to mankind. You need a place of safety. And in a real sense, you need God to save you from God. You have a bigger problem than Satan on your back. You have a bigger problem than somebody in your life that gets on your nerves. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the wrath of God abides on you. You need God to save you from God. 
want to save you from God. But then Moses teaches us even more than that. That's a reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, at least in its infant form. But then he tells us this. Look at verse 11. He tells us we have an inability. We know about these things. At least we got some of the framework in our minds of who God is and who man is and what our needs are. And then he says this. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Think about that. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Modern translation. Who thinks about this stuff? Who thinks about the eternity to come and the wrath of God and the sinfulness of man and my little sliver of life? Who thinks about this stuff? Do you find yourself gravitating the other direction? We're in that battle. And I can think of a time in my life where I heard the gospel over and over and over again. Sinfulness of man, holiness of God, God's gift of Jesus Christ, His atoning death for my sins on the cross, His triumphant resurrection from the dead and His offer to all mankind to repent and to believe in Him and live forever. And I can think of countless times in my life where I heard that glorious gospel and I walked away and I said, who gives a witness? This is what Moses is saying. Who thinks about this stuff? Who considers these things? The wrath of God, the anger of God, the eternity to come. Who thinks about this stuff? What he's highlighting here is we have because of our depravity and our fallen nature apart from Jesus Christ, we have an inability to put these points together. We have an inability to really feel the urgency of who God is and who man is and the eternity to come. We have an inability. Who considers these things? And as this man of God ponders that inability, he's looking out over people that he loves, and he's thinking, who thinks about this stuff? And as he ponders that inability, it drives this man of God to his knees. That's our only response. This is who we are before this eternal God, and our only response is to bow the knee and to call out to the living God for mercy. For mercy. And this is what he's teaching us about life. This is what he's teaching us about life in this world. We need God's mercy. We need God's mercy. Look at this in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let, your, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Everything else prior to this is preparatory. This is the man of God teaching us about what we need in life. And so when he bows to me and he begins to call on God, here we have six prayers. Six prayers of very specific things that Moses is praying for. Okay? And I think that these six prayers are instructed to us 
This is what we need more than anything else in this world. If you want to think about that, if you care about Christ and you don't want your life to go up like a torch and waste for Jesus Christ and you want to steward this gift of time that God has given you, this is what you need to know. This is what you need to give attention to. And more than anything else, this is what you need to ask God to do. This is what you need to ask God to do in your life. So I, want, I want these to be very practical as we move through this. And I want you to think about this. This is how not to waste your life in 2017. Point number one. Prayer number one. Ask God for a spiritual awakening. And I'll explain that. Ask God for a spiritual awakening. You know that that's a biblical thing? To ask God to wake you up. And you see this in verse 12, and it says this, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That word so means this. It's following what we just said. Who thinks about this stuff? Therefore, or so... Teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. Now, what does that mean? To number your days. I have a little little son that's learning the very beginnings of mathematics. And what this doesn't mean is that, right? Like, teach me to know numerically how small my days are, how few my days are on planet Earth. This is not that. This is not that you merely acknowledge the facts that we've already covered. Yes, I acknowledge it. I'm going to die in a short time. This is not about factual information. This is asking God to take the brevity of human life and to stamp it on your soul. That you feel it in your bones. That God would awaken you that you have a sliver of time on this planet. That He would wake you up to the eternity to come. You need to ask God for that. You need to ask God for that because you know that you gravitate the other direction. We've already said that. Therefore, we need to bow the knee and we need to say, God, teach me to number my days. I hate that about myself. That I daydream about all this time that I think that I have when I don't have it promised from God. Teach me to do the opposite. Teach me to live this day as if it made sense in light of the eternity to come. Teach me to number my days. Notice that this knowledge only comes from God. This is not something that you can put together like a formula, a mathematics formula. He has to do something in your insides for you to truly know how to number your days. It comes from God. He has to stamp it on your soul, which is why... Jonathan Edwards, one of his famous prayers, is he, he bows the knee to Christ and he says, Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. That's what he's asking for. I want to live and move through my normal everyday life, thinking often, thinking, thinking all the time about the world to come, the eternity to come. Teach me to number my days. This is what David prays for in Psalm 39, verse 4, and he says this. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Let me know how fleeting I am. Very often I catch myself wanting to know the opposite. 
know, like I want to, I want, I want to know how strong I am. I want to know how secure things are in my worldly life. And the man of God bows in the knee and he says, "No, let me know how free you are. Remind me that I'm that vapor, that mist, that that vanishes away, soon gone, and then flies away." And when God does this, we bow the knee and say, "Teach me, Lord, to number my days." And He answers that. And he stamps that urgency on the human heart. Then we get what verse 12 calls, we get wisdom. We get a heart of wisdom. Which means with that urgency stamped on us, we, we finally understand the things in life that matter in eternity. And we can walk and move and live in this world in a way that makes sense forever. Once we're awakened to the urgency of the So that wisdom sets the stage for us knowing how to live in this world. And really the following prayers, they, they begin to unpack that. Look at prayer number two. We're to ask God for His holy presence. You are to bow the knee to the living God and you are to ask Him for His presence. You see this in verse 13 and you see the man of God say, Return, O Lord. Translation, come to me. Draw near to me in mercy. Draw near to me, God. If you don't have this grid, that God is present everywhere in all of His creation, He's omnipresent. But the living God draws near. There is, there is a such thing as closeness with Jesus Christ. You walking in intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ in this world. And I want to say this, without a doubt, 2017, I have no idea what your life has in store for you in a lot of ways you don't either. But I do know this, your greatest need this year and any year that you are alive in this world is the presence of God. You need God. More than you need to finish school or a better job or help or money or changing your circumstances, you need, more than anything else, you need God to draw near to you. In mercy, you need the presence of God in your life. A life lived without God in this world. Even if you have everything else besides Him, but you don't have Him in eternity, you have nothing. You have nothing. The fastest way to waste your life in this world is to ignore God. Lord God, you need His intimacy. You need His fellowship. You need to know Him. You need to walk with Him in this world. And so I want to commend this to you, Grace Community Church. If you were to name something, numero uno bullseye, what I want to go after this year, this is it. I want fellowship with Jesus Christ. I want the nearness of God in my life. I want the Lord to return to me in mercy. I want Him to draw near draw near. I want to live in conscious fellowship with God. The Puritans used to call this life quorum Deo. They used to describe their entire life as quorum Deo before the face of God. Everything in your life, your eating, your sleeping, your marriage, your work, your praying, your leisure before God's holy face. Everything in His presence. This is the prayer. Return, O Lord. Prayer number three. 
as we bow the knee and we ask God for what I'm calling gospel joy. Gospel joy. And you see this in verse 14 and verse 15, these words. Satisfy us and make us glad. Satisfy us and make us glad. This is basically an Old Testament version of the gospel for the believer. If you've been around this church, you've heard that word enough. This is basically an Old Testament version of that. And here's why I say that. To be satisfied in the steadfast love of God from a New Testament perspective, where do we go to find the steadfast love of God? And there's no other answer to that. Right? I read this passage in Romans 5 earlier. God demonstrated His love where? On the bloody cross of Jesus Christ. And so basically for us, this is a prayer that we see that bloody atoning death of the Son of God and we name that. That's your steadfast love for us. And the prayer is this. Satisfy me in that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Satisfy me in that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. How about that prayer? 2017. What, what do you want in life to look like? And the answer is, I want to be happy in Jesus. I want to be satisfied in Christ. I know God's Word tells me everything's not going to work out in an earthly way. It's not going to work out happy for me. There are going to be difficulties. I'm going to be tempted to sat be satisfied in other things but more than anything else. I want to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. I want to be satisfied in Christ. Now, I want to say this as a warning. When we begin to talk about stuff like this, about wasting our life and eternity to come, we love Christ. The majority of people in this room, you love Christ. You care about these things. But way too often the reflex is this. Therefore, I don't want to waste my life. So I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, and I want to do this. I need to do more of this, more of this, more of this. And there's a place for that. But this is the man of God teaching us before we need that external stuff and that action for the Lord. He's calling us in to our affections for God. Our affections for Jesus Christ. Being satisfied in God. Being joyful in Christ Jesus. Okay? This is a warning for us. And let's just say this. We're still talking about an experience. We're not talking about facts that you can lay open and read about in the Scriptures and know it like a test in college. We're not talking about that. We're talking about you knowing the Gospel facts in such a way that you feast on them, that you feast on the glorious Gospel of Jesus. It's nourishment to your soul. And that you feast on it to such a point that you are satisfied that you don't want anything else. And you're satisfied completely in Christ. Do you want that experience? This only comes from God the Holy Spirit. You're powerless to bring that about in your life. This is why we bow the knee and we say, Satisfy us with your steadfast love, Lord, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. All our days. So if you find yourself doing that, if you find yourself automatically running towards it, this is what I need to do for Christ. This is what I need to do for Christ. And you ignore the affections. That is the fastest way to waste your life on this planet. You will waste your life if you ignore this. God demands that you love Him. 
God demands that you rejoice in Him. That you be satisfied in Christ. And that means this. 2017, if you work it to the bone for Jesus, preach the Gospel every single day. If you see 500 people come to Christ this coming year and you don't rejoice in Him and you're not satisfied in Jesus, waste your life. Nothing. This is how important the affections are. The greatest commandment in God's Word is to love the Lord your God. So I commend you this prayer. That you bow the knee and you ask God for a real, discernible satisfaction. That God would take those false satisfactions away from you and that He would grow your satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is coming to us from this old servant of God teaching us how to live in this world. Let us walk through this world, glad in the gospel. Glad in the gospel. Number four. I call this pray for eyes to see God's providence. And I know I made a mistake when I studied God, but I already prayed. Don't worry about that. that distraction. Eyes to see God's providence. God's providence. And you see this in verse 17. Verse 16, sorry. And it basically says this. Show us your work. Show us your work. Show us your power. Show our children your power. Show us your glory. So this is the prayer. I want to see the providence of God. And I think that, that this is what we learn from that prayer. That we are way too tempted to read the Bible and to see God's mighty acts as locked in a book, locked in history. And that we know Him as the mighty God, but we know Him as the mighty God way back there. And Moses is doing something different than that. He's bowing in the end and he says, no, 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 no. Show it to us, Lord. Let us see your power. Let us see your mighty power on display in this world. I think he's reminding us that God is the living God. That we heard this verse quoted earlier today. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not just the God of salvation and for the children of Israel. He's the God of salvation in Jackson, Mississippi right now. Right now. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're going to ask God, open my eyes to see what you're doing in the world. You know that there are verses in God's Word that sometimes we have a, we have a hard time categorizing them. Like Isaiah 6, when the seraphim say, say, say this, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And we say, where? Where? The whole earth is full of the glory of God? I don't see that. Where, where is the earth full of the glory of God? It's because we need eyes to see what God is doing in this world. We need eyes to see the living God and, and His work, His hand of providence at work in our life, in our children's lives, in our marriage, in this local church, in this city. And that's the prayer. Show us your work. If you do that, if you walk through your life and you only see God as an idea, something that you study that's locked in history, He's not the living God for you. He's not the living God for you and you will waste your life. He's not an idea to be studied. He's the living God, the dwelling place in every single generation. Prayer number five is a prayer to be made like Christ. This is a prayer for sanctification. You see this in verse 17. And it says this, Let the 
favor of the Lord be upon us. And it literally says this, let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. And you can see that in most of the footnotes of, of verse 17. Let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. And that's a reminder that as we're passing through this world, it's not enough for you to know about God. It's not enough for you to rejoice in God. You actually have to be like Him. God desires to take His holy, beautiful character and display it like a light to the nations in your life. He desires to, to take His likeness, to take His character and display it in you. How often do you pray that for yourself? Make me like Jesus. Make me like Christ. I don't want to waste my life. I must decrease, John the Baptist. He must increase. I want to be like Jesus. And the reason we bow the knee and we ask for that is because we can't do that on our own. We need God the Holy Spirit to work upon us, work Christ's likeness into us. And our final prayer is found in verse 17. And it's a prayer. For God to make us fruitful in this world. Verse 17, he says this, establish the work of our hands. So we said this before. You run to, what can I do for Jesus? I need to be doing more of this for Jesus. There's a place for that. It's right here. There's a place for working for Jesus Christ. In fact, we say it like this. You're commanded to. There's a mission. There's work to be done for Christ. You don't work for Christ, you are disobedient. We are laborers in His vineyard. Every single disciple on mission with Jesus. But this is a prayer of something entirely different. This is a prayer that's bowing the knee and saying, as we're going about this labor for Christ, we don't want to do this in vain. We don't want to preach His gospel in vain. We don't want to make disciples in vain. We don't want to study His Word in vain, preach His Word in vain. We want it to be established. We want something to happen when we do those things. Again, we want God to be the living God. Not just an idea. We want to see Him save sinners in this city, in this generation. We want to see many come to the eternal God and receive Him as their refuge. We want our works established by God. And only God can make us fruitful. Only God can make us fruitful as individual disciples. And look at this. This is really in the pool. This is a prayer for the people of God. And that means that you can pray this for your, for your local church. That the works of our hands corporately would be established for eternity. That God would use our works in this coming year to do eternal work in His kingdom. God can do that. God can do that. How does that happen? Not by mechanics. Not automatic. It happens by bowing the knee and calling on God and asking Him to make these things firm in our generation. C.T. Studd famously said this. He said, Only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for me. And that's really how we're closing today. We want to die happy in Jesus. We want to die happy in Christ. And in a very real sense, you could define what I'm doing right now. You could define pastoral ministry as getting the, the people of God ready for eternity. 
We're preparing you to die well. We want to prepare you to see the face of Jesus Christ. So this is it. We're sitting aside, pulled up a chair, beside the servant of God, and He gave us a prayer. He gave us a prayer. And I commend that you use this prayer for your life in 2017. And my prayer for all of us at Grace Community Church as we go into this new year is that we would be marked by what we're talking about, by bowing the knee and ask God to do something in this generation, in every individual heart, and that God would answer us. We don't want to waste our lives. We want to make the most of it for Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do, we're going to close our time together today. We're going to pray through this. We're going to pray through those six things. And this is just the start of this for, for this coming year. We don't want to waste our life. Therefore, we need the mercy of God. So let's pray together. Let's pray together. Lord, we come today in Your presence and we confess our sins to You. Lord, I confess my sins to You. Self-sufficient man in many ways. Lord, we are self-sufficient people. Lord, help us to bow the knee to you in this moment and remind ourselves that we can't do anything without you, Lord. We can't do anything without you, Lord. We need you for everything. And Lord, we tell you we love you. Our response to your glorious gospel is that we love you. We don't want to waste our life. But we've been in this battle many times, Lord, and we know our sinful nature gravitates towards leisure and daydreaming not urgency and labor. And so we pray, God, that you would do a work in us, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would teach us to number our days. God, do that. God, give us that experience tattooed on our souls, God. Lord, we pray that you would return to us, that you would be a God very near to your people, and that we would know you, Lord. And I pray that for every member in this room, we would know you, God. We would grow in our knowledge of your holy presence. Draw near to us, Lord. In mercy, God, we don't deserve to walk with you in this world. We don't deserve it, Lord. God, give us grace. Give us grace. We ask for your presence. And Lord, we pray today, we, we pray that you would satisfy us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that same breath, Lord, we, we pray, God, in you, Lord. Take away from us, Lord. All those other places that we run to for satisfaction besides you, God. Take away our idols from us. God, take away our distractions from us. God, make us so people satisfied in the gospel. Let it come with Holy Spirit power all across this room and every member. Remind us of how powerful your gospel is, how glorious your gospel is about Jesus Christ. Remind us of how much we need it, Lord. Produce joy in us, God. Make us the most joyful people in this world. As praise to you for what you know. God, we ask that you would show us your works in this church. That you would peel back our eyes 
and that you would show us that you are powerfully at work in our midst, that you would show us your power, that you would show us your glory, that you would show us the work of your hands so that we could praise you, Lord. We are being sanctified. You are making us more like Jesus Christ. God, help us to give you the praise that is due your name. God, show us your power in this city. Remind us as disciples of Jesus that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that your gospel is the power, your power and the salvation. Remind us of how powerful it is, Lord. Let us see conversions this year. Men and women made new. Call from death to life. Lord, show us your work. God, do it for you, Lord. Remind us that you are the living God in this generation. And God, we bow to you today and we pray that you would establish the work of our hands as a local church. That you wouldn't let our meetings together fall to the ground and be profitless. And that you would use them, Lord. Make them edifying, God. God, hope our works for you impact eternity every single cycle.